And we are back from Munster, Indiana, Eliezer Zalmanov and Mandy Hetrick from Istanbul, Turkey. We had some uh, positive feedback. We had some interesting feedback from our introduction episode. And believe it or not, we're back for another week of a conversation between two rabbis. And uh, so we're, going with the, we're going with the title Chatting Rabbis, at least for so now. The rabbis will chat this time all the way from Turkey to Indiana, and we'll speak about this week's Torah portion, no? This week's Torah portion is a great place to start. And uh, we could have started with last week's Torah portion about the flood and Noah's Ark, uh, supposedly on uh, one of the mountaintops in Turkey. But that boat has, that ship has sailed, no pun intended. So let's focus on this week's Parsha, Lech Lecha. So how does Turkey connect to this week's Parsha, Lech Lecha? Ah, so that's the, you know, this summer I went with my son Chaim on a great uh, road trip of 8,500 kilometers all around Turkey. Um, I titled it the Turkey Jewish Road Trip. And I visited actually Haran. What that, I think it's, it's, it's mind boggling. You come to a little village in Turkey. Is it actually called still, Haran? It's still called Haran. It has about wow. uh, 20,000 people in this little place. Still called Haran, H-A-R-R-A-N. And just walking on that hill really connects, because think about it. Abraham was there. Sarah was there. Rivka was born there. Uh, Rachel, Leah were born there. 11 of the 12 tribes, sons of Yaakov, were born there. Besides Benjamin, that was born on the way to Israel or in Israel, so it's it is quite powerful, you know. It's it's so think standing on that on that hill. I was with my son Chaim, and he plays the violin, and he started playing. Mira Lusanta en la Juderia, que había de nacer, Abraham Avinu. Abraham Avinu, Padre querido, Padre bendito. Can you give us a translation of that song? I remember hearing it 25 years ago in the Montevideo, Uruguay. Exactly. So, so that speaks exactly about that, that uh, Abraham was born and... Um, he was born in Ur Qasdim, which is actually uh, close to Basra in, in Iraq. But he traveled with his father to, uh, to Haran. We read it at the end of last week's Torah portion. And he comes to Haran. And, and that's where God tells him, Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha me'artzecha. Go out of your land. From the house of your father. Go to the land that I will show you. It all happened right here in, in Haran. I think it's quite quite amazing, quite powerful. Is, is, is there any uh, indication of that history there? Definitely. First of all, the, it is quite interesting. I, I spoke yesterday with um, with an archaeologist who, who digs here in Turkey, and he says that um, the 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 temple, the, the idol worshiping of Haran, is identical to that of Ur Kasdim in Basra even though it's a thousand kilometers away. So the families migrated. Exactly. The fa- families migrated. It's quite a strong indication of people migrating from Ukazdim to Haran. Also, it's, what is quite interesting is that 
this uh, idol worshiping uh, center or temple existed until the 10th century. Historical terms, it's quite quite close. A thousand years ago, they were still worshiping the moon in Haran. Um, well, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting city. The city has been uh, lived on for for four or five thousand years. Um, has has a it's a oval shaped uh, city, and people still pretty much live in the same way. Is it, a, is, it, a, is, it a, is it a regular urban style city now, or is it uh, the same ancient style? in uh, caves and huts. Same, same, same ancient style. You know, at the entrance of the city, there is a little, a little water, water well, which is called Bir Yaakov. Wow. Bir Yaakov, which means the and well, there, Jacob's and there, well. And there's a big boulder on top and they wait for all the shepherds to come together. Not sure about the boulder, but plenty of shepherds. Plenty right. of shepherds. Everybody brings their sheep to drink water from the well. Wow. It's still exact, in exact same way. And then, you see some camels walking by and you think, are these camels descendants of Eliezer's camels, the one who he brought 10 camels from the camels of his, right. of his master in order to fetch a bride for Yitzchak? Anyway, so, so Haran is right here. So speaking about Haran and, um, and being the, what, in Turkey, what, what, Haran is, what, is quite what, amazing. What's the uh, Jewish community in Haran like today? Ah, oh, nothing. There's no no Jewish community in Shalom now. No Jewish community. In uh, there's no kosher restaurant. No mikveh. No kosher restaurant. No mikveh. No synagogue. But still, wonderful to be there. Um, I was I was there with with my son. As I mentioned before, we were singing Avraham Avinu. We also sang Ufaratsta. Right. Who were Hashem? Say Ufaratsta, right there. Ufaratsta That's where it was said, right? And that's where you exactly. came back. Exactly. Wow. So. So think about it. It's a quite a central place for Jewish history. When, you know, being in Turkey, and which is a place which is really so much, this has so much Jewish history here. Jews have been living in Turkey for 2,700 years. Wow. That, that goes as far back as the Bayezshain, the second temple. First At temple. First, first temple. First, yeah. first temple. The second temple has been was destroyed in year 68. Um, but the, the first temple... Which was uh, this was from before the first temple. Jews are already mentioned in the as been living in Turkey. Jews of Jerusalem have been mentioned living in a city called Sepharad. It is not Spain. It's actually a Sepharad. Okay, no, I won't say it's not Spain because some um, some commentaries um, definitely may, call it Spain, but other commentaries have mentioned that it is a name of Sepharad, a city in uh, in Turkey called Sardis, which still has. An ancient Jewish, uh, ancient synagogue built two thousand years ago. Wow, so the the history is there. Why why were you traveling around the country? Was this a road trip you do often? So no, it's uh, once a year I do a road trip with my son. I um, last year did with my son Eli, who is now in Abu Dhabi, and this year with my son Chaim, who is now in studies in California. Um, first of all, it's a good way of connecting with your with your son. Spend yeah, four eight, weeks. Eight thousand kilometers in a car with uh, one person is a bit. Uh, even if it's of your yeah, son, even, you, if, you, even if you love him very much and he loves you very much, you get to know uh, lots of things about your son, about yourself, about survival skills, surviving <laughs> on tuna cans and warm uh, and warm mayonnaise, <laughs> and asking some local bakeries if we could light up their 
their ovens to make pat Israel, so we can make kosher bread and kosher pitas, and they're slaughtering some, some chicken so we can have kosher meat. It's quite fun and interesting, challenging as well. Wow. Do you visit uh, uh, kosher establishments, uh, factories and plants on the way, or is that a separate trip? Somebody has to pay the bills. Uh-huh. So definitely part of the trip is visiting kosher factories. Turkey produces a huge amount of, of yeah. food. I was going to say that uh, in, in Indiana, we also spend a lot of time in the car on the road. Uh, first of all, taking my kids to school every day. But uh, my father-in-law, Rabbi Grossbaum, has been doing this for 40 years, um, put millions of miles on his car uh, over the last 40 years, um, driving, traveling around the state, giving a hashgacha, kosher certification to food plants in the, in the most remote and the oddest places. And this is in America, in, in rural places in Indiana. I'm sure Turkey is even more uh, remote and more rural. You'll find places producing kosher products. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, production of kosher food uh, is in the past 20 years that I'm involved with has also gone through so, so many changes. Many people think that if we, you get a, well, I know that this product is kosher. A product could have been kosher for one year or two years, and then it completely changed the way it's produced, the way it's served, the way it is byproducts that, uh, and things that go through. Um, so it really, really, things have to, um, you have to, you have to know, you know, have to know what it, what it takes. It takes a lot of experience. When you say that things change, when you say that, uh, the kosher industry trains, you mean locally, as far as local people keeping kosher or, or the industry and industrialized kosher pr- uh, production? Industrialized kosher production change and change the changes in, in many ways, many unexpected ways. I'll give you some example here, a really simple example here in Turkey. Um, after about the 10 or 15 years ago, production of cheese, cheese is a very important staple in Turkey, and lots of factories produce cheese. So these who uh, when produce cheese, they throw out the the way. That is a byproduct of the cheese once the once it uh, separates from the curd, so they would just spill out the way into um, out into into rivers or whatever to to deposit the way, and then some regulations came for uh, the environment and said that you have to um, you have to evaporate the way, and you can't just spill it out. Oh, once you evaporate the way, you get a lot of whey powder. Now, what do you do with so much whey powder? So we came up with the idea, well, whey powder is a really a great source of protein. So um, a law came out that all bread in Turkey have to increase their, their, their protein <laughs> count so people can there, there, dispose there, there, of there, there, their whey powder. There's a very strong whey lobby. It's a very strong whey lobby because a very strong cheese manufacturing uh, lobby. So uh, whey powder is now being disposed or not disposed of being used in the in the bread manufacturing. Now that makes all bread or almost all bread, unless really uh, supervised, makes all bread to become dairy. If you have dairy bread, you can't really eat it together with the meat because of the, prohib- the biblical provision of meat and milk. So you gotta make a, so people may, might've used the local bread for hundreds of years, might, now might have a, um, and dairy bread, and if they want to use that bread to make uh, to make balls, uh, you gotta have a, you have a problem. 
So things change. Things change all the time. That's just one one example. And of course, the, the source of whey, what that what type of rennet is used for the creation of the cheese? If it's a kosher rennet, not kosher rennet, and then you have to see if the uh, you know it goes right. on and on. It doesn't like end. like like uh, like every uh, every issue in kosher production. Is there a lot of export? Do they produce? ingredients that are then exported to other countries for kosher, for kosher production? Very much so, very much so. Turkey is, uh, produces, um, first of all, the agriculture is very, very strong in Turkey. I think uh, 80% of world's filberts or hazelnuts grow in Turkey. Uh, that's a very huge production, uh, huge, are they processed there too? I mean, for the most part, nuts, unless they're turned into an, actual, an ingredient, it's not a kosher concern for the most part. That's right. Nuts are, for the most part, are not, not the cashless concern. Nevertheless, um, consumers want to have a kosher symbol on their product. They want to make sure not everybody knows that nuts are generally not a cashless right. issue. Some people, um, well, some nuts, which are, which are roasted nuts, could be roasted with oil and can have other coatings and have uh, flavorings. And then these do become uh, some cautious, con do have cautious concerns. But just I, I give, I give, I give, I give a, a Hechsher, a, a, my, my kosher certification on a product over here that is 100% not edible. And the reason the company, the reason the factory wants a kosher symbol on their product is because their product is used in another product down the line that is also not edible. I think it's used to make cans and the cans are then used for uh, probably kosher food certified by OU, OK, or and so on. And they want everything on the entire supply chain until the actual uh, label is put on the packaging to be certified kosher. So the product that I'm certifying, I'm not certifying that it's co edible kosher, I'm saying that it's kosher because it's not edible. Right. So there are but, many things that you know that Goodyear tires have a kosher certification. Right. You know why? There, there's, there's some kind of oil in there that's used in, uh, in, in the same, yeah, similar to the, to the process that I'm, that, I, that I'm involved in over here. It's, 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 it's some kind of lubricant or an oil that's used in the canning process. <laughs> so it's actually in, in the, the reason why Goodyear tires have have a, a kosher certification is because the rubber or some sort of is used in the gum industry. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> some sort, so, something in the gum, and that's why you're not supposed to swallow gum because it has some synthetic uh, it has some tires gum. <laughs> it has some, so it doesn't have the black tire, black tire, but it does have some components that comes from the Goodyear uh, manufacturers, so that's why Goodyear has a kosher certificate. Speaking of uh, of Goodyear tires, so one of our uh, community members over here is the local has the local Goodyear franchise. He has many stores around the region, and one of the things that tire shops do when they replace your tires, they have to take your old tires. It's part of the law. The law requires them to take it because they don't want the consumers down as they throwing them into the into the dump into the uh, into the garbage into the uh, into landfills and so on. So the, the stores have to take back your tires and recycle them. And one of the things that the recycled tires are used for is a certain material, and I don't know exactly the specifics, but a certain material that's used to repair asphalt on the road. So the road cracks, 
and they come in with the, this material, they either they fill it in or they patch it up and so on. And there was a problem with the, uh, I don't know if it was Goodyear specifically, and I don't want to necessarily uh, speak about one particular company. You don't want to be held accountable. For I don't it. want to be held accountable for speaking negatively about one company, but there was a certain tire company that refused to sell or to give their, their old damaged recycled tires for this purpose of repairing roads because their whole business is potholes. When there's a <laughs> pothole in the road, the tires get broken and you buy new tires. So they don't, give, they don't want to give their own tires. It's shooting themselves in the foot. And uh, yeah, so everything gets recycled. Everything gets reused. It, it reminds me of the, of the dentist who invested in a candy company. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I always use this as an example when I speak about, about good and bad. What's good and what's bad? It's all relative. For a four-year-old uh, kid... A candy is really good. It's also for the dentist. Even though right. the dentist will tell you candies are really bad, he's really happy with the candy right. that he gave. It's all relative. Exactly. It's, it's, all, it's, relative. All, it's all a matter of perspective and how you're, uh, and, 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 and how, how much it benefits you and what your, what your goal is in life. Exactly. And, and maybe everything in life is about how much it benefits you. I mean, if, if we as individuals, and this is getting philosophical, if we as individuals didn't have benefits from what we did, we wouldn't do it. Even if it's a small minor benefit, and even if you can convince yourself that you're altruistic and you're doing things for the greater good and you have no ulterior motives. But Being altruistic is also a benefit. Exactly. That's what I was getting at. You, even that feeling, that good feeling that you get of, from doing the right thing is already a benefit. There has to be a... a, a a motivation and incentive for you to want to do the right thing. So there's nothing wrong with telling a child, you know, do the right thing and you'll get a reward, you'll get a candy. And for adults, it's not candy. It's another kind of, uh, of motivation or a reward for, for doing the right thing. That's, that's life. Does that mean that life is really capitalist? In a way. I mean, you have to know where to stop and you have to know how much uh, reward is is the, you know, <laughs> uh, without, without getting political over here there's, there's only so much that most people need to earn in their lifetime you need to be able to support yourself you need to be able to support your families you need to be able to give enough tzedakah. and uh, after that i don't know but what if people uh, would lose that drive to earn more and what if people would lose that drive of advancing? And everybody would say, well, I'm happy. You know the famous story with the Baal Shem Tov who told one of his uh, followers, who was a wealthy man, he told him, you know, you should eat every day a good, nice piece of meat and have a nice dessert, and you should really live in a beautiful house. And his, the Baal Shem Tov disciple asked him, why? Why can't you just tell him to give so much money for tzedakah? So Bashem said very simply, if that wealthy man will only eat bread and herring and people will ask him for tzedakah, he will say, if I'm the rich man and I eat, I suffice with bread and herring, you, for you, bread and salt is good enough. Right. But if, if he will live like a wealthy man according to his means, he will understand that other people also have to have more than just bread and salt. Right. That, that's, that's, one, that's one angle of the equation. But like we were saying, that there's also that motivation. If someone will, uh, will be, is motivated by having a nice car, he wants to drive the nicest Lexus or BMW available, and 
by him being able to afford that, that also enables him to give tzedakah with the money that he didn't spend on his car, then that's wonderful. Other people have different motivations. Other people have different incentives. But uh, sometimes you need capitalism to be able to give people what they want or what they think they need so that then they can in turn help others and be there for others. That's, that's how, I guess, I, guess, I guess in a way that's capitalism. Yes, but that's definitely a pre- people have to have a drive, have to always have a drive and, and something that will benefit them. And every person is a little child. Every person tries to get recognition, tries to get the smile, try to get other to like what he says and what he does. And we likes attention. Yeah. So what, what drives you? Let's go. Since, uh, since we spoke, last week, we said that we're going to be open, honest and frank. So uh, what's your drive? Hmm. <laughs> you cut me off guard you know rabbis they used to be just preachers not uh, going to to get uh, un, you know take off all their clothing right here in front of a, of a microphone but it's something i have to think about what drives me what drives you i'm ha- i was gonna say i'm happy you didn't ask me that question <laughs> uh you're right it's a it's a it's a, it's a good question that doesn't always have a perfect answer or sometimes we're afraid we're afraid to to face that answer or sometimes we're afraid to face it publicly right i, I once had a, a teacher in yeshiva actually he's our relative rabbi Tursky, rabbi nachman Tursky. my first year in yeshiva in in, uh, in Masifsa, he was teaching us bavakama tractate bavakama and his famous response to questions that we would ask him in class if it wasn't part of you know if it was going off on a tangent he would say so you have a question. I, I don't necessarily have an answer to your question. You ask a good question, and it's good. It's good. It's just keep asking good questions, even if there are no answers to them. Keep asking. Okay. But that, that's a question that, that the person should always ask. I, I, I do ask myself this question many, many, very often. I ask myself, um, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Um... I don't always find it, find an answer. One of the books that that really really uh, affected me when I was uh, when I was a bacher in yeshiva was the famous book by Viktor Frankl of uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, I always said whenever I speak to people, I always suggest them to to read it in Turkish and English and many other you know it's translated to many 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 languages. Very, it's a short book, very scary book, and very very meaningful book. It's about the search for meaning. That uh, he writes about how when you have a clear goal or clear meaning in life, you can overcome everything that you see, and you can overcome um, everything, including being in in Auschwitz as he was, because he had the goal of of rewriting the book that he threw out right when he came in at the first day in Auschwitz, as he described so painfully in his in his book. And I, I think about it very, very, very often of what is or how do I define my meaning in life beyond the cliches and beyond what we are, what I'm supposed to say as a rabbi or as a Chabad Shliach or as a Chassid. What really is it that I am, uh, that is my purpose in life? It's something that I, I ask myself very, very often. And it's a question that has to you have to keep asking it, and you have to keep uh, looking for meaning. A man's uh, search for meaning is something that is 
It's when, when you're done finding or searching for meaning, then uh, you're done living. Yes, but is it only about the search? That's a little complicated, a little bit difficult. Is it only about the search or is it about actually holding on to something that will carry, up, carry you from one place to another? I don't know. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, in, 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 I, guess, I guess I'm a little bit more simple-minded than you. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I, I, I don't know if I would get as philosophical or as deep about it, but what, what, the best way to describe what drives me is, is being able to leave a mark, to make a difference whether it's in one person's life or in the world or in a situation, in a, in a setting, whatever it is. And even if it's just my children, if after, if after 120 years and I look back and I say, I didn't accomplish much in life, but at least I look at my children and at least they, they're continuing, they're here. I brought them into this world. I taught them, I educated them, I raised them. But you know, as, as, as a shliach in a small town, and I guess in, in Turkey, you can, you can probably relate to that as well, where we're far from family and friends. We don't see our, our kids don't see their grandparents and we don't see our friends all the time. And thank God for technology, we can stay in touch. But especially in a small community where there's not hundreds of people and there, we don't have large classes and we don't have large minyanim. So that one-on-one -on -one relationship that we have with individuals, whether it's visiting them for a a mitzvah, whether it's tefillin, you know, visit, I visit people in their offices once in a while to do a tefillin or just having a class with someone, a conversation, a cup of coffee, saying the right thing, but whether visiting someone in the hospital, being there for them, even just smiling at them and hearing them out when they have, uh, when they're having trouble in life. You're not going to have that global impact that uh, you read about on some of the websites and in the newspapers of other communities. But as it, as, uh, as it relates to the impact that we have on individuals, I think that's, that's, that's probably the drive. Making, making a difference in a, in a very small way, but it accumulates, I guess. I mean, the older you get, the longer you live, the more opportunity you have to make that small difference in, in someone's life. It, it sounds a little bit uh, pie in the sky, a little far-fetched, and it sounds very, uh, uh, very nice. But when, when that's the goal, so even if you're not completing it and, and accomplishing it perfectly, but at least you can keep that goal in mind. So that's also something that I, that I often think about. Um, you know, my kids, my wife hates dogs. It's a Jewish thing. And, but we have a neighbor, a very good neighbor who has a dog and my kids adore the dog. And quite often they call him up and he brings over the dog and the kids take him out, take the dog out. Uh, for a walk and uh, when it's a little kid so I uh, you know I go with them because I don't want to send them send them alone to the park and you know what dogs do they leave Not, a mark okay <laughs> all right here was I yes and when I, when I think about it, my, my job is leaving a mark, is what type of mark is my, am I leaving? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was, a, that was an interesting introduction to the point. <laughs> it's true, yeah, you can, you can leave a mark and that's something that you're notorious and infamous for and you'll never be forgotten uh, for something horrible that you did, obviously. 
Uh, you know, which reminds me, which reminds me the story of the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, that um, once a chassid came to him and he gave him a blessing for a long life. And he said, uh, he accepts the blessing of Anishkin Poirish Yoren. I would I accept the blessing for a long life, but I don't want a life of a, of a, a simple peasant. farmer and a, yeah. of a peasant. Yeah. Of a peasant. I want my life to be meaningful, to be real, to be filled with meaning. So it's not like running the donkey running after the carrot. It's not about the search for the meaning, sort of, but of a fulfillment of real meaningful life. So every step of the way is a meaningful life. So I, I, have a, I have a perfect example for you. We spoke about your, your road trip with your son and how you took advantage of the time to get to know them and then to get to know you. So we, we, I have a, a, a similar relationship with my children that we spend a lot of time in the car. So not 8,000 kilometers at a time, but usually between two to three hours a day, we spend in the car driving into Chicago every day for school. So the destination is school. That's analogous to the search for meaning. We're mm-hmm. on our way to school to get there, to arrive, so that they can have a day full of their, of their uh, a very uh, vital Jewish education. But the trip itself is also meaningful, or at least we have to make it meaningful. So the journey getting there is, is, is an opportunity to turn it into something. So yes, yeah, life is a search for meaning. But the search itself could be meaningful and could be impactful on ourselves. Which reminds me of a story of a Hasidic story of Rabbi El Paracha, and with that we'll we'll end off before it's getting late over here. Okay. A story of Rabbi El Paracha, who uh, made up with some uh, wagon driver that will take him to visit the, his rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher rebbe. And Rabbi El Paracha was a great scholar, a great Hasid, a great mind, and he's traveling. But he, the, the wagon driver knew that he uh, that it takes him a long time to pray. Every prayer takes a few hours. So he made up with him, okay, I'll take you, I'll drive you over. It didn't take us two days to travel all the way from Paris to Lubavitch. But on one condition, in the mornings, you just pray quickly and we go on on our way. You're not going to have time to hang around these little uh, junky hotels on the way and the little uh, uh, motels or... Uh, Catch me on the way. We, we, you know, you dive and we go. You pray and we go. And uh, of course, they go on the way and come in the morning and the Bill Pacha start, start praying and praying and praying and praying in one hour, two hours, five hours, six hours. And uh, in late afternoon, he's ready to go. And the, the wagon driver tells him, what, what is this? We made up that you're going to pray and go. The Bill Pacha tells him something very simple. says, listen, why am I going to, to my Rebbe to Lubavitch? To learn how to pray. But I got it right here. I was able to pray here. I got it here. Why do I have to? I'm, I got right. it here. Right. It's like, it's like then, and the, uh, the marshal, the, uh, the parable was person who goes down to the market and is going to uh, purchase goods in the market. And on the way, he stops off to someone who's giving it to him by, for, a, for, a, for a better deal with less schlepping and less travel. So that's the, the same, same concept of making the, uh, making the search for meaning meaningful itself. I think you're right. This is a great way to conclude. Um, So our message to our listeners is, of course, if you have feedback, we'd love to hear it. Uh, Positive, negative, neutral, anything, we'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us. You can email us. You can text us if you have our numbers. 
but uh, a reminder to make the uh, search meaningful. Right. And we'll meet here every Thursday. Every Thursday. Wonderful. Inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you.